Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's pretty obvious to everybody that the climate is changing. Today's guest, Stephen Pine, believes that we're entering a new geological era characterized by uncontrollable fires that he calls the Pyrocene. He's here today to tell us what we could expect in the future and what we can do about it. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I'm basically a, a fire guy, mostly a fire historian. At times, I like to refer to myself as a pyromantic not a pyromaniac, important distinction. Mostly now I write, I'm an urban farmer in Phoenix, Arizona. We have sheep and citrus and uh, an emeritus professor at Arizona State University. An urban farmer, can we dig into that a little bit? I know that's sure. not quite the pyrocene, but how do you define an urban farmer? That, that, that sounds great. Well, my wife about a dozen years ago announced she would stay in Phoenix if she could raise sheep. And uh, the recession hit, and there was property near one of our daughters in the outskirts of the Phoenix area, and uh, it was zoned for animals. And so we have now half a hectare, and uh, we have 15 Tunis sheep, about uh, 26 free-ranging chickens, about the uh, same number of citrus, which we mostly juice, and then some raised bed gardens. So Actually, for a small amount of land, uh, we can do quite a bit with it, we've learned, for the little planning. And I have to say, that's how we survived the pandemic. I had a place to wander around and animals to talk to. <laughs> well, I would agree with you there. What's interesting is that you're talking about something that would be a kind of medieval smallholding, really. Yeah. You're talking about your local, very local area, which you manage quite intensively. And, uh, and I believe that sort of individually managed small plots of land are dramatically more productive than the big industrial acres. But of course, you can't manage such huge areas of land in the same way you can manage a small local area of land. Yeah, and we, we don't have the land in crops, so we can't really live off it. The, the farm pays for itself. My wife has developed a, a wool business, mostly interested in, in the wool and roving and knitting and, uh, wow. you know, all 
all the yarn and all the rest of it. So I've, <laughs> I've learned a lot. She also wanted us to do something that I knew absolutely nothing about. So it would level the field. And I knew nothing about sheep. So <laughs> it's a bit like uh, I, I sometimes, you know, new areas of discovery are a little bit like going to the big school for the first time. You, you suddenly, you, you left your last school, then how it is in the States, but in the UK, you know, your sort of school you go to first and then you upgrade and you go to the big school when you're a bit older and suddenly you've gone from being oldest person in the school and top top of that school to the lowest, weediest, least powerful member of that school society overnight. And it's a good learning experience. I think it's quite humbling, actually, to realise that we don't know things about certain subjects. It is. It's a good reminder. And it's been a good project for my wife and me. You know, our kids are gone. Uh, we have grandkids not too far away, but we could have just slid into our comfortable ways, you know, once I was headed to retirement and this sort of rekindled everything. Sounds fantastic. Right. On to the main subject, the piracy. Tell me about the piracy. What was your thinking behind it? And it's an unusual term that I've not heard before. So I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts. Sure. Well, it's a term I invented as a, a compliment to the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene is dominated by ice. The Pyrocene is an age that increasingly is dominated by fire. So it's my restatement of the Anthropocene, and I like a long Anthropocene. And this is a way of recognizing that the power source behind the Anthropocene is fire. It's a way of recognizing that uh, you know we have a species monopoly over fire. We're the only animal that manipulates it. In this way. It's what we do ecologically, but no other creature does. So it's all of that. It's also a kind of culmination of about 45 years of studying fire and longer. Uh, if I go back to 1967, when I joined a fire crew for what turned out to be 15 seasons, got me interested in fire. So it's a culmination of a lifetime spent dealing with fire and thinking about it and in its many forms. It's also my answer to those who are alarmed about the future, who think it is not only dire, but strange. So strange that we have no narrative by which to connect it to the past and no analogy by which to move into the future. Well, I think we have a great narrative. It's the saga of humanity and fire. It's one of the epic narratives of our existence and increasingly of the planet. And I think we have an apt analogy that when you add up all the ways we're dealing with fire, we're creating a kind of fire-informed equivalent of an ice age. So when does the story of man's manipulation of fire roughly begin? Because I believe human beings were around before there's evidence that we yeah. we could control fire. So as, as a species, we lived without the ability to control fire for quite a long time. No, as a species, we've always had fire. Have we? Okay. Uh, as a genus. It goes back clearly to Homo erectus, and now they're expanding the domain of Homo erectus probably two million years. So at one point, all the various hominids from erectus on all could manipulate fire as far as we can tell. They're all gone now. We're the only one left standing and holding a torch. So we've had it all our existence, and we've used it. I mean, there's a good argument, I think, that we got small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now I think we've become a geologic force because we've begun to cook the planet. But I think there's evidence now that's been released a few months ago. Someone discovered in Central Africa 
evidence of human fire landscape change 85,000 years ago. But I think the real story for me takes off when it's just us, we're the last species doing it, and at the end of the last glaciation. So the Holocene, say 11, 12,000 years ago, when the planet begins its latest interglacial, begins warming, is when it begins for me. So you have a fire-wielding creature and a fire-receptive planet, and we begin moving and the two begin interacting, and we've done all kinds of stuff, and I think including modifying the climate, not at the scale we're seeing today, obviously, but begin changing everything about the planet. We've steadily done that, but it goes on afterburners a couple centuries ago when we quit dealing with and burning living landscapes, which had always come with checks and balances, you know. They're elastic, you can push them out, you can rearrange them, you can do lots of things, but there are always limits to this, how much you can coax or coerce out of the earth for burning. And we turn to burning what I think of as lithic landscapes, which is my term for all the fossil fuels. That is stuff that had once been living, now fossilized, lithified, and we're taking it out of the geologic past, we're burning it in the present with all kinds of interactions we don't really understand yet. And then we're releasing the effluent into the future. So at that point, it becomes unmistakable, our firepower, and in a sense, no longer shackled by the old ecological give and take. It's really Prometheus. I mean, there's a reason why Prometheus was chained. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think it's accidental that Shelley and others start talking about revisiting Prometheus unchained at exactly the time the steam engine becomes abundant and they start referring to these engineers and inventors as new Prometheans. The problem is that, you know, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry, it doesn't matter. It's interesting because there are quite a few myths and legends about humanity being given fire. And I was thinking, if fire predates us as a species, I wonder whether it's some kind of odd memory that we kind of got given fire by a different hominid, by a different species of creature. Um, Because I often think some of the legends are horribly garbled, messed up sort of memories of things that did happen a long time ago. They they come from somewhere. I love that idea that maybe it was a Neanderthal that taught sapiens to use fire. Well, I think we had it. We wouldn't have survived. 200 to 300,000 years successfully without it. I think that's just part of our species heritage. Hmm. But that came from earlier hominids. Clearly, it passed on, and we were part of a chain of this, uh, of passing the torch, in a sense. But I do think there may be a sense of eternal flames. There's a sense that it was a lot easier to maintain fire than to start it. And if you lost fire, there are lots of stories that it's a disaster. And you're hungry because you can't cook food. You're disempowered. You become weak. There's a lot of the fire legends are about humanity as being just one of one of the great menagerie, you know, the great unwashed out on the planet. And suddenly it gets fire and we become powerful. It changes the relationships and fire is power. It's also the case that sometimes we're given fire, but more often we have to steal it. And there are lots of old stories and rituals where you don't give fire away unless there's a bargain, you know, for a marriage or a treaty, you might combine fires. But even uh, in ancient times, 
Greek settlements would carry fire from the mother colony, the metropole, out to wherever they were going. And there are all kinds of ceremonial fires that identify going from the family hearth or the clan fire to the state. I mean, the, the Vestal Fire of Rome being perhaps the best known of that and not being allowed to go out. In a way, that's separating out the possession of fire from the creation of it. And it's almost as if the possession of fire came well before the easy ability to actually kindle flame yourself or to, to actually make it. And that sort of stuck with us as a concept. I mean, let's face it, the Olympic torch, we still have a fire ceremony today, don't we? Every four years. We have lots of fire ceremonies and many of our sort of seasonal ceremonies, um, summer, winter solstice, fall and spring, uh, Halloween fires in the fall, May Day fires in the spring. All of these were fire ceremonies at one time, and they associated with the agricultural or pastoral calendar. And most of these ceremonies do what fire does in nature. They renew. They destroy to regard as bad things, and you make possible a new regrowth. And uh, lots, of, lots of other myths from Ragnarok to the Stoics' great cycle talk about great fires coming and destroying the existing world and then allowing it to be reborn. I mean, so we have the ice ages, and we know those are real, and we know ice giants potentially come from certain communities seeing vast sort of walls of ice that quite possibly did, well, used to exist, um, still do in certain places, but were much closer. And fire, you're saying, plays a role in the destruction and rebirth. So we have to sort of go through this great burning before we can be reborn as a society. That's pretty worrying for us in a way, if we're in the piracy now. I agree. I mean, when you think, what are the great traits we associate with the ice ages? Well, immense ice sheets, okay? But also big shifts in biogeography, large migrations of species, some of which don't make it. So there are mass extinctions, changes in sea level, climatic changes. Well, that's what we're seeing now. I mean, we're seeing fire doesn't sit and burn constantly like an ice sheet does, but we're seeing fire-informed or fire-branded landscapes. Uh, world's large chunks being remade. We see shifts now in biogeography, change in sea level. I mean, we're driving off all of the ice and almost all of the ice age creatures are being driven to the margins and into extinction and mass extinctions. And we find you know, it was during that ice age that the hominins were created. And we used fire, I think, as sort of a counterforce. And the, the story, the quest for fire was always about finding more stuff to burn and new ways to extract things out of that burning. So a lot of hunting, foraging, agriculture. I mean, it all has fire as a catalyst. So many technologies for making things dependent on fire. And now we find ourselves in the reverse position that we've got plenty of stuff to burn. The problem yeah. is what to do with all the effluent. Yes. I mean, we're outside the old systems for absorbing fire and well broken. And so even those who dream, well, we'll start over on a new planet. We'll go to Mars or something and colonize it. Well, they're going to do it on plumes of flame. <laughs> so we're going to carry it with us. Also, if you think about how fire is used, for quite a long time, there's been a suppression of fire in a lot of ecosystems. And it appears that that actually might be going too far, mm -hmm. that a lot of ecosystems need fire to clear the undergrowth and to renew themselves. 
Well, in fact, it's very obvious that some do. And that if we don't allow occasional fires through, things build up to the point where when a fire does happen, and fire will always happen in these circumstances, it is so catastrophic that it destroys the ecosystem entirely. And that's really interesting. You know, humans try to intervene, try to stop fire doing its thing. And when we do, we just build up a problem for the future. Well, my take on that, my particular interpretation is, why did we think it was a good idea to take fire out? And then how did we do it? And fire in natural landscapes or even agricultural landscapes and so forth functions very differently than fire in the city. In the city, it's great. Take it out. The way we took it out and what we thought we were doing was we had another source that gave us firepower, which was burning fossil fuels of various kinds. And so we remade our houses. We remade cities. I'm happy my house isn't filled with smoke, frankly, and I'm happy the city I live in doesn't periodically disappear in flame and smoke. All that can be to the good, but we applied the same logic to other kinds of landscapes, and that has been a disaster. In fact, it has led to what's called the fire paradox, that the more you try to take fire out of these living landscapes, the worse the fires are when they do come back. And we need to remember that fire has been on the planet as long as terrestrial vegetation. I mean, we have fossil charcoal dating back 420 million years. I mean, that's right after stuff comes out of the ocean, you know. That's before things like flowers and trees, quite frankly. There was a great study, I think a, a year, year and a half ago, uh, somebody had actually found a dinosaur skeleton and they were able to do some imaging of it in the stomach and analyze the stomach content. And this was an herbivore. And they found charcoal in the stomach. You think, well, charcoal? Were they eating charcoal? No, they were eating in burned landscapes because that is always the most nutritious and palatable browse, the stuff that is coming out after the freshly burned area, just as it is today. And that's how you know we move flocks of animals. That's still how pastoralism traditionally integrating burning into that. So there it was. We just took stuff that was all out in nature and then tamed it in a way. And in some ways, I, I think we can make an argument that fire was our first domestication. And even the terms and the way we imagine it, you're having to tend it, you're having to kindle it, you're having to take care of it. You even feed it, you know, you feed it with logs. It's a relationship. It's not just, it's not like a stone axe that you can just sit and put away. You've got to take care of it. There is something quite magical about a controlled fire, uh, and it can relax you, you can drift off when you're looking at it, it keeps you warm on one side and maybe cold on the other, which can be quite nice if you're sitting outside, and it kind of causes contemplation, which is the exact opposite of a big fire, which is yeah. the extraordinarily terrifying monster that is out of control, and it doesn't take a very big fire for you to realise that this is incredibly dangerous. Well, we're not intrinsically afraid of fire. I mean, if you were, you would have been out of the gene pool a long time ago. We gather around fires, and there's evidence now some of the hunting foraging societies in Southern Africa, studies have done, and a lot of the culture, the storytelling, the transmission of knowledge is done at night around a fire. And, uh, you know, you sit around a campfire at night, people get very mellow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's very relaxing. The hearth fire is the very emblem of a family, but fire is a shapeshifter. Its nature is postmodernist. It will assume the character of its context. And if you've got, you know, a messed up landscape, you're going to get messed up fires. 
and we have done a lot of messing up with the earth and its inhabitants. I've often felt that probably the development of houses, living accommodation, is actually as a direct result of building windbreaks around the fire. Yeah. You know, you're sitting around a fire as a group and somebody goes, it's really windy from over there. And then you pile up things to act as a windbreak. And then you're sort of starting to create a kind of an enclosed fire. And a lot of early housing is a ring around the fire pit, yeah. very literally, um, with, a, with a hole in the roof. So in many ways, the whole kind of settlement thing and building of the built landscape comes from building a roof over the fire and walls around the fire to sit against. I mean, that's the domus in the Latin. And domiciled, and then the same root for domesticated. And you see a lot of images from European exploration in different societies. I'm thinking quite a number from Australia, early contact period. And you will see the indigenous people sitting around a fire, but the fire often has the shelter over it. <laughs> you don't want the fire to go out. It's okay if you get wet. <laughs> Right. Well, the wind blows, but you don't <laughs> want to lose the fire. Okay, you could start it again, but it's complicated, and there's something you just you want to protect the fire. And so I think you're right. A lot of this is built around the need for the fire. Now our houses are built around a home entertainment center. Yes. And again, we've sort of gone digital. We, we've sublimated fire into electricity. It happens somewhere off-site. We get it indirectly. We don't realize that our cars and our so much of our raw energy is coming still from combustion, but in a way we don't see. It's invisible to us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I discovered something the other day which I found quite shocking. I, I, I live in quite an old house. It actually goes back to the medieval period or certain parts of it. And so I have real fireplaces, which I absolutely love. They do take quite a lot of work. And I was looking at some new build houses just down the road and I suddenly realized they didn't have any chimneys built into them at all. There's no sort of structure designed for chimneys, except they did have chimneys on the roof. And I asked a builder friend of mine, and he said, yes, those are made of fiberglass. I said, what do you mean fiberglass? Oh, everybody wants a chimney. This is for the UK. I don't know what it's like in the States, but people don't want a house that doesn't have a chimney because chimneys look right, but they don't actually want fireplaces. So they are putting fake chimneys on the top of houses in Britain yeah. to give that sense of home and health, but with no actual fireplace underneath them. Yeah, well, fire can be messy and you have to tend it all the time. Mm. So now there are many iterations and you can get it on Netflix. You can have a fire, a virtual fire on your monitor <laughs> and have that play and listen to the sounds 
instead of having the actual fire. It really is calming mm. and kind of mesmerizing. Mm. But uh, we've also created by our misuse of fire. And I mean, think about our firefighting. I'm sure you've seen images of firefighting going on in California the last few years. And what do you get images of? Well, you get airplanes and helicopters. You get engines and bulldozers and chainsaws and pumps. All of those are run off fossil fuels. That is, in a sense, we found a kind of industrial counterforce to take on those fires, except that the larger result of all this kind of combustion has changed the climate as well as how we live on the land. And now we're getting fires that no amount of industrial counterforce can match. I mean, these are completely out of control. A landscape fire used to be, if not tamed, it was at least manageable in some ways. And now it's just become feral. I mean, it's not even wild in the sense of being natural. It's burning in an unnatural landscape. Mm. So we had a relationship to fire that, I mean, I think of it as a kind of long, long ago, we made a mutual assistance pact with fire. And fire would empower us to go wherever we wanted. I mean, we've taken it to Antarctica, for heaven's sakes. I mean, I've sat over, over cooking stoves in Antarctica. And we got there by planes and boats and all this other stuff. But at the same time, we've expanded the domain of fire. And fire is now present and in different ways than it could ever have been simply left without us. So it's becoming a Faustian bargain rather than a mutual aid <laughs> arrangement. There are a couple of things I wanted to, to say. I mean, one of the interesting things is how divorced people are actually from real fire in their lives. I've done medieval reenactments, sort of one of my other areas. And during the day, I might do the horse things and jousting and that kind of stuff. But in the evenings, when the general public go, often there's a fire and we all sit around it and we recount tales of what we've done. But often during the day, these camps will have fires and cooking demonstrations of medieval food. And one of the common questions from members of the public is, is that a real fire? And people seem to assume that somehow it would be easier and more convenient to not have a real fire than have a real one. And I always wonder what they think it is. Is it, <laughs> is it a hologram? Or yeah, um, maybe they mean, is it gas powered, I suppose? But it's always struck me as a sort of quite a curious question, whether you, people can't actually recognize real fire anymore. They don't see it. They don't see it. I mean, even at my university, students in dorms were prohibited from having candles. Any kind of open flame is considered a hazard. Even if you're building stuff out of concrete and glass and all the rest of it, there's still going to be lots of combustible stuff, wood and plastics and whatever around. So you can grow up without ever seeing fire. We're still dependent on it, but it's in completely sublimated forms. We don't see it. The only time people may encounter fire is horrific wall of flame they see on a newscast. We've lost that connection. And if you live in a modern city, fire is gone. Yeah, I was trying to think, because obviously we had lots of clean air acts, and that sort of reduced people's use of wood burning and coal fires and in the UK smokeless zones exist where you have to use specific types of fuel or specific types of burning technology if it's a wood-fired stove. So there's some thought gone into it. And I suppose in London, we used to have the what used to be called pea supers, which were a combination of natural fog and smog. And that was actually really, really dangerous. You know, people yeah. couldn't breathe the air properly. So we've kind of moved a long way from that. 
But at the same time, we also have a lot of demonic representations in popular culture, which are wreathed in fire. Yep. You know, I mean, Lord of the Rings, for example, they use the, the metaphor of the flaming eye and the Balrog. And so fire demons have also featured quite heavily yeah. in past myths and contemporary myths, I suppose. Well, I think the London scene, too, was made worse because so much of it was coal. Right. Because you couldn't burn enough wood. But the wood causes smoke. Particles are right in the range of visible light, so they show up in ways that nitrous oxide doesn't or other kinds of emissions. And too much of it, it is a health hazard. I mean, we're seeing some of these enormous smoke poles in the Western U.S. or in Australia a year ago, year and a half ago, people being driven inside houses. It, it's dangerous, not just unhealthy, but outright dangerous. In Canberra, Australia, I think the Postal Service refused to deliver anymore, and you know, it was unhealthy. So there are trade-offs. I mean, the kind of smoke people used to when there were a lot fewer of us and the fires were different is more like a seasonal nuisance. It's more like pollen, ragweed or or pine pollen that comes at a particular time, it would be bad, but not these tall, these sort of killer fog equivalent fires that we've seen in recent years. And that's a result because these fires are completely out of control. So I'm thinking that one of the ways to reform fire policy, certainly in the US, is that the smoke is carrying fire and its problems to people who otherwise wouldn't experience it. So we burn over or into a rural community. Oh, it's tragic. It's terrible. But what does that mean to someone in San Francisco or Portland or Seattle? Not much. It's just, oh, it's another tragedy. And then we move on. But when the smoke from those fires is forcing you to stay indoors for days, suddenly it becomes real. So it, it's like in the 1930s, we had these great dust storms from the Dust Bowl. And the, those dust squalls carried the problem to lots of places that otherwise didn't think about it. So it became meaningful. Yeah, suddenly it's real. Um, going back to your medieval reenactments, because open fire would have been a fundamental part of their technology, of their lives, et cetera, et cetera, that people wouldn't associate it with medieval times because there's a very strong trend reinforced by Hollywood and other culture creations that fire is associated with the primitive. Mm. And if not the demonic, it is associated with a different kind of society than sort of enlightenment society we have. So even in movies like Star Trek, you will have the Klingons in their city. Well, these people have got all this advanced technology, including you know stealth cloaks and all this other stuff. And yet when you see their city or you see them in their normal habitat, it's filled with flames. Mm. They light the city with flames. Well, that is a way of showing them as a more pre-rational pre-enlightenment, honor-based culture. It's different. And you see this repeatedly that we have that. And so in some ways, I'm surprised that people looking at a medieval scene, I would think, where are the fires? Yeah. And where are the animals? And where's the animal yeah. dung? This is, this is one of the other, <laughs> the other aspects is, is, is that there would be a lot more smoke, a lot more fire, a lot smaller pieces of wood would have been burned because anything big enough to act as timber yeah. was almost certainly not burnt unless you were very, very wealthy. You would burn the brash and the twigs yeah. to make your fires. So that, that, you know, that would be a thing. But also there'd be animals everywhere. And animals create noise and smell and dust and dirt <laughs> and in a wonderful way. I, I love my animals and you do as well. And I always feel that we give the wrong impression at medieval, yeah, at Ren Fairs, for example, or the equivalent, because 
there just aren't enough creatures around. Yeah. There isn't enough mess. There isn't enough chaos. It's all a bit too well organized and organized in a system, yeah. you know, for convenience. And I, I feel that it would be a lot more chaotic. I mean, language, as we know, language was fairly localized. I mean, the States is different. It's a much bigger place, but you still have regional accents. Now, imagine scaling that back and having less communication and people in California would probably speak, broadly speaking, a different language mm-hmm. to people in New York. You know, and if they actually met, they probably wouldn't understand each other at all if you were kind of translate that to sort of medieval Europe. I just find there's so many things we miss out and the management and use of fire. So, for example, having a firekeeper to keep the fire going when you go to sleep so that it's easier to light in the morning or easier to kindle mm-hmm. the working fire rather than having to start again right. is a big factor as well. Even things like rush lights. The tiniest of flames, candles, which were expensive, rush lights, which were relatively cheap and smoky, you know, they created an atmosphere. And it, you're right, Hollywood loves to have flaming torches in, <laughs> in scenes. And I tried riding with a flaming torch once in the darkness, and it lights you up very effectively. It doesn't light much, <laughs> much of anything else at all. You really can't see where you're going. Yeah. Well, I mean, as an experiment, try taking fire in all its forms out of a medieval life. How would that function? What would you be able to do? I just think it literally wouldn't function. Yeah. Local cooking, local produce, staying warm, let alone any of the sort of skills, the crafts, blacksmithing, for example. You know, all the myths associated with blacksmiths and manipulating metals. And how much agriculture relied on burning the fallow. Yeah. I mean, that's what sort of ecologically renewed it. That starts the process over again and so on and so forth. I was also thinking curfew from the French, cover the fire, because you would cover it at night, and you didn't want open flames when people weren't awake to do it, or banking the coal. You would cover the embers, the coals, with ash, and then in the morning you could uncover it, and the heat would still be there. You blow on it, and then you start it over again. These these were all kinds of rituals of life. I'm not sorry to see all of them gone. I mean, I, I sort of enjoy my conveniences, but clearly we've got it in a way that's out of control. We've moved too far away from it, I think. Uh, it's one of my passions is trying to imagine how ordinary people live their lives. But when somebody says, is that a real fire? Or did they have fire in the medieval period? Or every castle on television uh, has burning torches every 30 feet. And I'm thinking, well, who's maintaining those? And who's, who's lit all those candles? You know, And they're not going to last very long. And you're going to strip your forest. I mean, you're not going to yes. have any fuel left. But, see, the removal of that is also one of these reasons why a lot of rural communities are now at risk for fire, because they would have cleaned out all that surrounding countryside for fuel wood, Mm. as well as other purposes. And we would not need controlled fires now and other things to go in and remove it sort of in situ. It would have been harvested and taken in and burned for domestic and industrial purposes. Yeah. And the ash spread in the garden, because where else are you going to put it? Um, you've got to throw it into the garden. That has its own sort of cycling. The charcoal goes back in a little bit, and that retains water and nutrients in a good way. They probably didn't realize they were doing good things at the time. They didn't, certainly didn't know the science behind it. But in fact, it was probably quite sensible. It worked. Mm. And unfortunately, part of the Enlightenment's sort of imperium was to wipe out all of that, or most of that traditional knowledge dismissing it as superstition and simple tradition 
and wanting to replace it with positive knowledge. And maybe the reasons people gave for a lot of what they did don't make sense to us today, but what they did made empirical sense. And we came up with new reasons, but we quit doing all those good things. And now we've got a mess. So just to finish up, your book, The Pyrocene, is that available in the usual places if people are interested in reading more about it? It is. And I'm happy to say I finally proved to critics that I could be a man of few words. And it's a short book, deliberately so. It's a very concise sort of treatment. Wonderful. Is there any other elements of your work that you wanted to sort of tell our listeners about at all? Anything you, you want to share with us before we round up? Oh, I don't know. Uh, probably my best book was actually about ice. I had a chance to spend a field season in Antarctica. So I've seen a full-blown ice age world, and it's actually more terrible than fire. I mean, fire is threatening, but it requires the living landscapes. It requires us. Ice doesn't care about any of that. I think a lot of hells are actually icy, aren't they? Strangely, the, the, the Christian hell is very fiery, but I think a lot of hells are actually ice and cold. That's right. It's the, the body is cold. You're dead. It's oblivion. And even the innermost circle of Dante's Inferno is ice. So for me, a place where ice dominates so completely is where fire dies. And so that for me was sort of, if I think of fire as a kind of epic cycle, that's where it ends. Now, however, we're driving the ice out. We've got a runaway fire age. We've shown we can disrupt the climate. We now have to show we can manage it. And fire may save us from the next ice age. Mm. The Milankovitch cycles and the rest of it are all still beating. We've held it off. We've gone too far, but we may need a lot of our combustion talents and our firepower to keep us from a world of ice. Right, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> a cheery note. <laughs> Winter is coming. The ice giants are going to be here. There is going to be an icy Ragnarok because we know they're a thing. They've been a thing multiple times. It's coming. Yes. So wonderful. Lovely to speak to you. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. Thank you for the invitation. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.